The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, the place is London, the year is 1962, the month is October, and two barely noticed things happen. On the same day, in fact. A movie about a British spy starring a little-known Scottish actor comes out, and an unknown guitar band releases their first record. The movie was Dr. No, the first in the James Bond series, and the record was Love Me Do by The Beatles. Fifty years later, when London hosted the Olympics and chose to put the United Kingdom on full display, the opening ceremony started with James Bond parachuting into the stadium and closed with Paul McCartney singing Hey Jude, the Beatles song, accompanied by a stadium full of people from around the world who knew all the words and sang along. Bond and the Beatles. Only the Queen was as prominent in that ceremony, and from my across-the-pond vantage point, I'll throw in a word for Shakespeare, and maybe we can add a few other cultural touchstones, Dickens and tea and strawberries and cream and Sherlock Holmes and the fog. Harry Potter is knocking on the door. What do these symbols represent? What does it mean for a society to have them? We look at Bond and the Beatles and the British psyche with author John Higgs today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. John Higgs is here. You may remember him from our an episode we did on William Blake. His book, William Blake versus the World, is worth your time. And so is his new book, Love and Let Die, which explores what those twin phenomena, Bond and the Beatles, have meant for the British psyche. What they have meant for for cla- in terms of class and sexuality and cultural and political aspirations, let's say. I'll give you a, a little taste of why this is so interesting to me, apart from my general fascination with Bond and my total obsession with the Beatles. But let's, let's uh, before we do that, let's tackle one of our Kafka moments. These are the 99 pieces of Kafka's life as gathered by Reiner Stock, Kafka's biographer, and polished up and put on display in his book, Is That Kafka? We are exploring them at random, thanks to our Google generator. Let's go straight at it. We won't even take a break this time. Here we go. I'm plugging in 1 to 99 in the generator, and we get uh, 27 which is a good random-sounding number. It puts us in the emotions section of the book, and it is Kafka Doesn't Believe the Doctors. Uh-oh, that sounds a little ominous, but it also sounds kind of familiar. Have we done that one? Indeed, we have. So instead, I will flip through, and here we go. 85, Kafka as the Devil. Oh, boy. Well, interesting. And actually, it's just a description from Kafka. There's no commentary. Usually, Reiner Stock uh, gives us a little context, some clues, some, some history. This time, apparently, he just gave up. So let's hear it. Kafka as the Devil. Two children were loitering in front of Casanelli's window display, a boy of about six and a girl of seven, finely dressed, talking about God and sins. I stopped and stood behind them. The girl, perhaps Catholic, maintained that lying to God was the only real sin. With childish persistence, the boy, perhaps a Protestant, asked what lying about or asked what about lying to people? or stealing. That's a very big sin too, said the girl, but not the biggest. Only sins against God are the biggest, for sins against men we have confession. As soon as I confess, there's an angel standing behind me again, because when I commit a sin, the devil comes up behind me. You just can't see him. 
and tired of this half-seriousness, she turned on her heels just for fun and said, See, there's no one behind me. The boy turned around too and saw me. Look, he said, not intending that I should hear, but not thinking about it either. The devil is standing behind me. I see him too, said the girl, but that's not who I mean. <laughs> oh boy. Presumably that's from Kafka's Diaries. I love this one. Kafka standing there minding his own business, eavesdropping on the mouths of babes and the world in the form of two children. Notice him. Comment upon him. Skewer him. Look, look, there's the devil. Don't you see him? Yes, well, I see that devil, but I was talking about a different one. And Kafka just absorbs this blow and moves along. What do you say in response? I'm not the devil, but maybe you are. Anyone, that's what the devil would say, right? And why would that convince them? They'd be like the rain saying, I'm not making you wet. A child would say, well, of course you are. I know you are. I know what you are. I see it. I see you. Kafka's absorbing this blow. And Reiner Stock, who, who so dutifully gives us context and explanatory notes for these other passages, just shrugs. <laughs> I imagine him reading this little excerpt and then turning pale, swallowing hard maybe musing to himself hmm yes well hmm well perhaps i'll i'll just include this one <laughs> and we will move on to number 86 posted without comment but we comment don't we we comment here at the history of literature podcast because kafka that poor miserable driven haunted hilarious visionary man our Czech saint, and I guess devil too, is fascinating and compelling. Speaking of which, the Beatles and Bond are fascinating and compelling, both substantively, substantively, and as phenomena. But let me talk a little bit about why this topic of cultural markers or, or societal psyche or definitional touchstones, why that topic interests me, maybe how I started thinking about this. I can tell you, I've never liked when people try to define me or make assumptions about who I am. I think most people feel that way. I can remember being irritated by a guy I barely knew saying to me at a party when the drinks were being served, this was like a dinner party, and he said, oh, English major, I bet I know what kind of beer you like to drink. He was loud and obnoxious, and I was in my late 20s. I didn't think of myself as an English major, although that was apparently how he defined me. And I definitely didn't think my beer preferences correlated with my college major, and in fact, they didn't. He went on to crow about a kind of beer that I must love, and I actually hate. I was puzzled by all this, and, and then I was downright offended when he kept insisting that I must be joking because he knows what kind of beer an English major drinks, and it turns out that his son-in-law, the poor schlub, was an English major, which this guy never got over, and the son-in-law drinks a particular kind of beer, which I won't name, but which this guy also never got over, and it made him correlate the two. Oh, this guy is like this, and he, he correlated me with that guy because we were English. Look, there's a lot of English majors people, fewer now, I've learned, but there were a lot at the time. It was a very common major. Lots of different tastes. Not, uh, we were uh, not necessarily a, a homogenous group. Now, imagine a bunch of assumptions based on skin color or religion or geography or generation, and there you go. That's even worse. Stereotypes and assumptions, even well-intentioned ones, can feel like a straitjacket sometimes, or they can be especially harmful. I can laugh off a, a beer preference, but not all assumptions are that easy to laugh off. 
they can hurt. And sometimes they can feel nonsensical. English majors drinking one kind of beer, huh? What? Or when I went to Italy and I would tell people that I was coming from Chicago, this was the early 1990s, and they would say one of two things. They would either say, ah, Chicago, Chicago Bulls. This was in Michael Jordan's heyday, and I would smile and nod. And and yes, I watched all the games, of course. I loved Michael Jordan. So that sort of fit. I guess I, I could accept that as a little, almost the equivalent of a handshake or a pat on the shoulder, the verbal pat on the shoulder. Or they would say, ah, oh, Chicago, Al Capone. And then they'd hold up their hands like a gun and make a Tommy gun sound. And I would smile at their enthusiasm, but it was a faint smile. And I would say, yeah, I guess that's Chicago from the from 70 years ago, maybe. Once in a while, I'd, I'd get a Saul Bellow and I'd appreciate that. But it didn't really define me. I was watching Michael Jordan on TV like everyone else in the world. And I wasn't running around in, in Al Capone's mean streets. I'd resist it if someone suggested that that maybe I myself didn't have a respect for the law coming from Chicago or, or assumed that I could take off from the free throw line and dunk. It felt weird to be defined in this way, but mostly harmless. And I can imagine someone from London hearing the topic of this show and saying, oh, dear God, James Bond. He's a bit of a cliche, isn't he? Were the Beatles? That's not what I grew up listening to. Kind of old news now. We've gotten beyond that, you know. Or the Royals? Well, yes, we're not running around at parties with them. They're on the telly now and then, but easily ignored. And yet, and yet there are times. Here's another example. I would tell people I was from Wisconsin and they would say, oh, yeah, geez. You must love cheese. And I'd say, you know, I know that's what you think. And I grew up with that stereotype. And a lot of people say that to me. And guess what? I don't even really like cheese all that much. So why don't you readjust your conceptions, your preconceived notions? You're not being original or new. And then... After doing this for a few years, as I encountered people in the world, one day it kind of dawned on me that my grandparents were Swiss immigrants. After all, they lived in a, a small Swiss village there in Wisconsin, and they literally owned a cheese factory. <laughs> my mother grew up living in a cheese factory. That is where she lived. So yes, when people say, Wisconsin, ah, cheese, it was a little disingenuous for me to say, oh, come on, can't you do better than that? <laughs> it, was kind of, it is part of my origin story. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I was around it, I guess. I knew the world of dairy farms. I, I worked on a few of them here and there. Some of my friends still do or drive a milk truck or or buy their cheese straight from the factory, which is, there's, there's a factory about three miles from my parents' house. My mom shops there. What does it mean to have cheese and cheese makers as part of your lore? Does it mean you're, you're thrifty and industrious or connected to the cows and the fields in which they live? Or do you feel a kind of pride in a product if you're from Paris, do baguettes mean anything to you or the Eiffel Tower? Does it define you in some way? When you, I would not necessarily think so. But then when you read the futurist poets and they talk about the feeling of, of growing up in Italy, this was 100 years ago, 110, 120 years ago, and they talked about how they felt growing up in an Italian city or an Italian small town and walking through the streets and and being and feeling like you were walking through a museum and they wanted something different they wanted the machinery the gadgets the signs of progress 
not the anchor to the past of stone streets and crumbling old towers. I've often wondered what it would be like if a Jack Wilson were elected president, or if one were a serial killer, and my name would forever represent that first and foremost in people's minds. They'd say, right, loved the, ah, Jack Wilson, like the president. Well, you know, I loved the the X bill that he passed, but I hated the, the Y scandal. Or if it was a serial killer, meet someone new. Hi, I'm Jack Wilson. Oh, geez, doesn't that feel creepy? Have a name like that? Are you a violent person yourself? Ever dress up as a clown? If you're from the land of the Beatles, does it change you because you're treated by others in a certain way? Do they treat you better? Do they say, oh, right, peace and love. That's what the Beatles were all about. I love their music. I'm assuming you're a nice peace and love kind of person too. You must be. You're from England or you're from Liverpool, where they were from. Is that how you yourself, does it change the way you're regarded by the world? Is it how you yourself feel? Probably not. But do you feel anything? Do you feel when you watch James Bond that you're seeing an idealized man, the swaggering spy, the suave and competent public servant, the best that Britain has taught, better than the best? Do you feel like it's that's representing you and, and anyone you know? You think, yes, this is who we are. This is the role we play in the world. Competent. Geniuses. Brave. Willing to get our hands a little dirty. Saviors. Do you think, yeah, that's not far off. James Bond, that could be me. Thinks we're a little different. <laughs> or do you think, oh, it's a fantasy. Everyone I know is, is way too bumbling and incompetent and poorly dressed. It's like a bad joke. If you subtracted Bond and the Beatles from Great Britain, would the people of the past 60 years change much? Would they be viewed differently by the rest of the world? Would they view themselves differently? And if so, how? That's fascinating stuff. If you're interested in people and pop culture and, and nations, societies, and of course, these five figures, the Beatles plus Bond, are just interesting in their own right. They've ascended to the top of their profession, right? Hard to imagine four musicians more famous than the Beatles or a spy more famous than James Bond. So let's bring out John Higgs to explore and in some sense celebrate the most famous rock band in the history of the world and the most famous fictional spy in the history of the world who both got their start on the exact same day. And let's see how they're doing now at the age of 60 and what it means for the Brits, and for the rest of us. John Higgs, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is cultural historian John Higgs, praised by the Financial Times for his systematizing imagination. John was here before to discuss his book, William Blake versus the World, and he's here today to discuss Love and Let Die, James Bond, the Beatles, and the British Psyche, which, as I joked on Twitter, could also be called John Higgs Decides to Write a Book for Jack Wilson. John <laughs> Higgs, welcome back to the History of Literature. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's a joy to return. Thank you. So let's begin this way. I am a fan of James Bond. I'm a super fan of the Beatles. And I'm also an American who is sometimes a little embarrassed around my British friends when they don't share my enthusiasm for those things. <laughs> <for those things. laughs> uh, but I'm really fascinated by the approach you took in your book to look at the impact of these cultural phenomena on six decades of transatlantic pop culture, what the Beatles and Bond mean to Brits, to their conception of themselves, how they present themselves to the world, what they mean to Americans, and and how that's changed kind of the relationship between America and, and Britain and so on. So, and as you point out, they're twins in a sense, right? Yeah, that was my excuse, really. Mm -hmm. The fact that they both appeared on the same day, yeah, on, on the 5th of October 1962, the very first James Bond film and the very first Beatles record yeah. made me do. And Dr. No just appeared on, on the same day. And I think because Bond and the Beatles are, you know, so huge. Yeah. They're, they're, they're so domestic. They're always around. We don't, we don't really think of them a, a huge amount. We just assume we know them. It's only when you sort of look again, you sort of realize just how implausible and improbable and, and sort of strange they are. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the idea that you could, you know, create an action hero for a film that would go on to do 25 sequels over 60 years, all of which is successful, all of which makes money. It's just ridiculous. It can't be done. You know, yeah. every film producer would be doing it right. if it could be done. But because, because James Bond is so part of everyday British life, we never really look at it and go, gosh, that's, that's odd, actually, now I think about it. Yeah. And, and, the, and the Beatles, very, very similar thing. The idea you could form a band and, you know, have the sort of impact that the Beatles did or, you know, make the creative leaps that the Beatles did. No one believes that. No yeah. one at all. So it, it seems sensible to look at them together because they don't really fit with other action heroes or other, you know, 1960s musicians. They're kind of their own things. They're these, these two giants in, the, in our, you know, cultural ecosystems. And in some ways they're, they're contradictory of one another. But why don't we just start with Bond? Mm. I know it's hard to see because, you know, like you said, he's everywhere and he's just sort of everyone now has grown up with him and and mm. him being on the screen and, and a Bond film coming out every few years. And just the idea that, well, these are going to be, you know, worldwide box office hits. It's just a, you know, it's just you could just take it as a given. But what does he yeah. mean to the British? It's a very good question. You can certainly see over the years how he sort of become or the character has become the establishment mm -hmm. at, at the early days, particularly in Ian Fleming's novels in the 1950s, there was a, there was a little bit of shame about him. You know, it was, it was seen as sex snobbery and sadism as a yeah. famous review put it, um, yeah. which was, you know, entirely accurate, but it's moved to the point where say in the 2012 London Olympics, there's right. that scene where to, <laughs> to bring Queen Elizabeth into the, into the opening ceremony, yeah. she's there under the protection of James Bond who appeared in his first novel just a few months after her coronation. So he's very much the sort of the Lancelot of the second Elizabethan era. You know, he's he's the sort of hero who will save the day and, and all these things. Yeah. Um, and yet he's so bound up with this, this negative and, and positive sides. He's not a, 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 a knight in shining armor on a white horse. He's messed up. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a very sort of dark, toxic side to the character in a way that's unusual for a, a hero of that sort of that sort of ilk. Right. If you if he had been dreamed up by a Hollywood producer, he probably wouldn't have 
as rough of edges as he does. It, it seems like Fleming Definitely. has got that in there. And, and then people who make the films constantly want to go back to that. They say, like Daniel Craig, I know, was kind of saying, mm-hmm. you know, James Bond, he, he became a kind of pun machine and, and kind of this a little bit sterile and, and a little bit superficial and wanted to get back to, let's make him grittier again. Let's make him like he was in the books where it's a little more, uh, he's full of conflicts and all of this complexity. Yeah, I mean, they do always say that. I'm not 100% convinced that's sort of what happens. Mm. The producers are constantly saying, oh, we're going back to Fleming. We're going back to the box. (laughs) And often that means that we've taken a name that was in a short story and given it to a completely different character. The character has changed a massive amount from Ian Fleming's version of it to certainly to Daniel Craig's version of it. Things like in, um, I think it was Skyfall, he alludes to a homosexual experience in the past. Just yeah. casually, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no way you would have had things like that in the in the Ian Fleming books. Yeah. Uh, Ian Fleming was uh, when he writes about homosexuality, it's it's not his finest hour. I think it's it's fair to say. What interests me about Bond is the way you can see the idealized fantasy of of what it is to be male yeah. shifting and changing over over six decades in a way that I don't think Ian Fleming could have handled roger moore's james bond let alone Mm. daniel craig's yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so the early one the early bond i mean i i sort of had this i grew up with this idea sean connery's the best bond Mm -hmm. uh, he's my favorite you know all of that and then put it on for my kids and my wife was there watching with us and i just realized oh my god this is uh this is so outdated (laughs) it's gonna be this is a hard sell for me to have this on in my living room today in 2022 Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's really issues of consent that mark yeah. the Sean Connery uh, bonds as most problematic, uh, which which don't go on past the 60s. But then there's problems of chauvinism come in, you know, yeah. um, and, and, the, and that recurring thing of if a woman sleeps with James Bond, she's probably going to die. Yeah. Right. All the all these all these issues sort of linger um, across the decades. And it's and you get you get the producers every time a new film comes out, go, well, this woman, she's not like the other Bond girls. Yeah. As if it wasn't them who had just been creating all the other Bond girls. And they give the captain more agency or they give her a more interesting role and something like that. But still. In the next film, they'd have to go, well, this woman isn't like the other Bond girls. It seemed to be a recurring sort of uh, unfixable thing. It was like the problem kind of wasn't really how the women were written. The problem was the James Bond character. And the problem was women dying um, after they'd sort of been with him. Yeah, um, which was finally addressed. I don't want to go, go into too too many spoilers about the end of the last James Bond film, but it's fascinating the way issues like that are all being addressed today, and it will be fascinating to see when the new James Bond is announced. Yeah, how his character will be. You know, this fantasy for the twenty twenties. They're a long yeah. way from Fleming now. Yeah, it what well, it seems to be that what Fleming and the early Bond characters had was this. On the one hand, you'd have this modernization, you know, you'd have these these gadgets. And he mm. was at the forefront of of everything with material things, you know, that it was, yes. you know, the, the, the fast car with <laughs> shoot bullets and, you know, all mm. things like that. And, and, and yet, compared against that, he had these sort of traditional views, and not just talking about women and, and his attitude toward them, but, but kind of a wanting britain to return to maybe some of its its old greatness or its it's very much yeah you know it's empire sort of era britain and and that i mean do you see in the modern bonds clearly they still keep the gadgets and Mm -hmm. they can update kind of the the chauvinism and so on but do you still see him as exemplifying a kind of well, things were better in the old days, or do you think they can wipe that away and, and have him be kind of a more of a progressive hero? It's difficult because it's so ingrained in the character. Yeah, I right. Mean, the, the point where both the Beatles and Bond appeared is fascinating from a British sense of view because it was at the point where even the most sort of, you know, right-wing and, and nationalistic could no longer except that the days of the British Empire of Britain being a major international global power 
that was clearly gone. It was after the Suez Canal crisis over here. That's mm. generally seen as the moment when everyone had to go, yeah, that's we're not, we're not a major power anymore, are we? We're, we're something else. And that had been the story we'd sort of told about ourselves for a couple of centuries, really. Yeah. It was all Britannia rules the waves, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's how people saw ourselves. And so it, we came to the point where that story had ended, which kind of left the question hanging there. Well, if we're not that... You know, then who are we? Who are we going to become? What's the new version of us? What's the modern version of us? Mm. And it was at that point when the Beatles and James Bond appeared claiming to be modern, but offering two very, very different versions of, of what it meant to be modern. Yeah. As you were just saying, Bond, it was all about, you know, new gadgets and flying around the world and, you know, wonderful clothes and wonderful food and, and brilliant things at the material level. It was new stuff on the material level, but the attitudes, um, attitudes to to country, attitudes to women, attitudes to non-British people, they were supposed to stay exactly the same. Mm. Whereas with the Beatles, they kind of liked old things. You know, the the, the faux right, Victoriana right. of uh, you know, <laughs> Sergeant Sergeant Pepper Peppers. costumes. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Yep. Songs about their childhood, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, all that sort of stuff. They, they, were, they, they were fine about the old stuff. It was attitudes that had to change. Mm. You know? Attitudes to, you know, to drugs, to sex, to women, to masculinity, to religion. That's class. what it meant to be modern. Yes, yeah. oh, certainly class, yeah. That's that's what it meant to be modern, was to have new ideas and new ways of looking at things. So in that way, they're very opposite. You know, they're very sort of different visions of, of what the future would be and who we were to become. And there's something about just putting them next to each other to these two very, very familiar things that when you put them next to each other, all these issues of, you know, class and masculinity and identity just come pouring out of them in a way that when you look at them separately, you don't, you sort of overlook. Right. You don't sort of pay much attention to. Right. I have one more question about Bond before I dig into the Beatles. Do you think that part of this, as Britain latched on to Bond and the Bond of the movies, do you think... Because let me tell you from America's perspective, mm. or at least to me, it looks like the move that was made after the empire was gone was to sort of say, well, we can be Greece to America's Rome. That America right. can be kind <laughs> of the, the big, rich, clumsy empire with the huge military and, and the big footprint around the world and all of that. But we can be the wise advisors. We've been there before. We can be kind of the, you know, there's there's so much about Bond when I watch mm. the movies is, you know, the, the CIA guy will show up and he's kind of saying to Bond, you know what, my hands are tied here, but I yeah. can get you the money. I can get yes. you what you need. But hey, my supervisors are, you know, out to lunch and why don't you save the day and, and kind of uh, <laughs> handle things? Is that do you think that's a role that that uh, Britain stepped into or or believed themselves to be stepping into? Uh, yeah, a lot of that makes a lot of sense. I, I think for a lot of people that would have um, uh, would recognize that description. There, yeah. there was very much a sense that the the, the British establishment were just sort of refusing to accept mm. that they didn't matter anymore. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and so there's an awful lot of wish fulfillment and, and, a, and a lot of delusion all sort of poured into the character. And it's and the way it's sort of being held up as sort of British soft power. This is this yeah. spy right. so classy and so competent and can do everything. And, you know, that's <laughs> Britain. And after things like the Brexit vote, that's become such such a, a huge sort of joke, you know, the way that uh, yeah. uh, the way Britain's now seen right. outside outside these borders. So you have these weird sort of um, situations where Bond is now being used by unfriendly countries to sort of mock Britain. For instance, when um, at the beginning of, of the year, when an MP who became Prime Minister, Liz Truss, she was then Foreign Secretary, she stood up in the House of Commons and said... Uh, Putin is planning to invade Ukraine and he's going to install this Ukrainian MP, Yevin Muriev, as a puppet ruler. And Muriev's response to this was to go on social media and post a picture of himself as James Bond, posing with a gun in front of that gun barrel sort of background. Yeah. And you think, 
that's that's an odd response, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's very strange. <laughs> uh, and and that the head of MI6, Richard Moore, also known as C, he gave a talk about uh, China and the danger of China, and particularly uh, use of Chinese telecommunications technology. And the Chinese media responded by making a film called No Time to Die Laughing, in which uh, this British spy, James Pond 0.07, was just this total idiot who had no concept of you know, the realities of the global political system. Yeah. Uh, and both of these together, you, you, you think, that's kind of what's, go- what's going on there. And it's yeah. only when you sort of understand the gulf between how James Bond presents itself to the world and how Britain is now seen by other countries after the Brexit sort of vote, mm. that you, you sort of get the joke. <laughs> right. You can, you can sort of see why Britain's being mocked through the character of James Bond. Right. Because it's so different yeah. to how, you know, how we are now and how we are seen. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is another great cultural export, and you could imagine... You know, Sherlock Holmes, the great detective, but Mm. it's a little bit different when it's a spy because it's, you know, by definition, it's someone who interferes with other countries' business and and crosses borders and so on. And you can sort of see where, you know, there isn't necessarily a backlash that's going to be set up where you would be mocking the idea that the British could be a great detective. But you can see where for something like a spy, it'd be like all of these other countries would be like, well, come on, you know, you really yeah. think one guy is going to come in here and solve all of the world's problems or, or, or solve them all in a way that's that's favorable to Britain and America. Absolutely. And because he's, you know, he's a, an employee of the state. You know, he's 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 yeah. an assassin for the queen, essentially. Yeah, That's right. how he sort of fits in uh, in a way that, you know, characters like Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Who or Robin Hood or they're, they're sort of much more, yeah. you know, free. Right. They're, they're, right. They're not sort of tied into it in, in, in quite that way. And it's, you know, it's it's very much in, to the credit of the film producers that a character like that can be so consistently entertaining and so consistently sort of thrilling and so consistently watchable. Um, yeah, it's a great credit to the, you know, the, the stunt teams and the production designers and, you know, all the craftsmen who sort of work on all these films yeah. that we can sort of over, we sort of overlook the notion that he's, you know, goes to other countries to kill people because right. he's got, uh, he's got permission from the queen. He's got his license to kill from the British state that we can, that we sort of, go with it and we just sort of turn up every film and generally have a great time. Yeah. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask, when I grew up in the 1980s, mm. we also had one of the other cultural exports, Monty Python, and mm. John Cleese was having a real moment with A Fish Called Wanda and, you know, he he did the the rounds of talk shows and so on. Yeah. And he used to do this riff on what it was like to be British. And his thing at that point was to say, we apologize for everything. We're so afraid to offend anyone. We're excessively polite. And, <laughs> and mm. you compare that with James Bond, and it you know, is sort of the opposite of all that. And it kind of made me wonder if, if Bond was viewed as, well, this is, this is how we really are. Or this is what we wish we could be. It's who we, yeah, it's, (laughs) this is who we could. That's the thing with the James Bond films is they have this uh, extraordinary ability to sort of whisper to you, go, wouldn't you like to be like this character? Imagine if this was your life, you know, in a way that, you know, no one fantasizes about being Jason Bourne or something like that. Right, right. But there's a thing about James Bond. It's not, it's not who men should be. It's not who men need to be. But it's it's always who men sort of want to be. Yeah. And and because of that, it's obviously flawed and easy to criticize. But there is something healthy about sort of exposing that to the light and exploring the fantasies and exploring the idea of how what it would mean to be better. You know? Right. Um, and maybe it just means, you know, dress more nicely. Uh, pay yeah. a little more attention to the food you eat and the wine you drink and kind of be a little more, have a little more style in your life and, and so Absolute, on. We're not all yeah. running out to be spies, but, uh, you know, they're... But, but we could all dress a bit better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about the Beatles, because I think that we are right at the point to tie that in as well. Mm. 
Okay, we're back. So the Beatles talking about here's who you want to be. I mean, the Beatles sort of famously appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And after that, millions of kids picked up a guitar, started a band, and and they really wanted to be like these guys. But what what do you see as kind of the view of the Beatles today? and, And how do they, if you are able to take a step back, what do they mean to Britain. Oh, it's, the, the Beatles are, are fascinating because the further you get away from them, the bigger you realize they are. Mm, mm-hmm. They're, because, as I say, you're talking about them being very domestic, always there, um, always part of your life. You don't really give them much thought. They're kind of like part of the family. Yeah. It's only as you get further and further away. For instance, in the in, I mean, in the 90s, people used to talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if those two were sort of equal mm-hmm. comparison, you know, they're equivalent sort of bands. You don't really hear that anymore. It tends to be, Britain tends to be described yeah. in terms of the Beatles and Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Those those are our sort of two proudest sort of moments. And in fact, if you if you Google the United Kingdom on uh, on Google, it puts up its own fact box describing, you know, what the United Kingdom is. And on the second sentence, uh, it says <laughs> Shakespeare and the Beatles, you know, ahead of Darwin, ahead of Newton, ahead of Jane Austen, ahead of, you know, of Churchill or anyone like that. Yeah. These are the two things that define the country the best. Uh, and I think people, certainly British people, are very happy about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, think, I think we'd be very comfortable, you know, just putting that out to the world as this is the best of us. Yeah. Um, and for people who want modern music, like other bands will come and go and they'll, you yeah. know, th- there seems to be a recognition that, okay, there's still uh, going to be, you know, 14 year old girls who are going to want to listen to something. And here's Oasis or here's the Spice mm. Girls or here's, you know, but there's never, there's only one Beatles in terms yeah. of, I mean, they're almost like Mozart or Bach where it's like, you know, we're yeah. listening to classical music and, and that's what dominates even now. Absolutely. I mean, there, there will always be the best selling band in history. I don't think, especially now it's the streaming era, that's ever, ever going to change. Yeah. And, and it's odd. It's like, it's like in the same way that Shakespeare is bigger than 16th century theater, even though that's illogical. Um, the Beatles have become bigger than 20th century pop music. Yeah, right. And it's partly their work. It's partly the constant one-upmanship between Paul and John. That mm-hmm. the just you know the, the constant need to come up with something different and try something new, and the the, the 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 imagination and the creativity. But it's also the story of these four men yeah. and the relationships between these four men is endlessly fascinating. Yeah, you know, I think I think there's been over two thousand books about the Beatles, yeah. and we're. St- and, and there's going to be another couple of thousand these easily. Yeah. Because the more we know about them, the more fascinating they become. You know, right. I thought, I feared when I was starting to write about the Beatles that, you know, I obviously had lots and lots of books to read. And at some point I thought, oh God, I might get bored of the Beatles doing this. It might, I might sort of, that never happens. The more you learn, the more interesting they become. Yeah. There's nothing like them at all in in, ter- in terms of that long longevity, and you know Generation Z, they're the only, you know, if you ask any teenager or someone born in the 21st century, name every member of a band from the 20th century, chances are they will get they will name all four Beatles, but they won't be able to do that for any other band. And if anyone's, you know, learning keyboard, learning piano, or something like that, they're probably going to learn a Beatles song mm-hmm. because that's our folk music. Yeah, it's become the music just just everybody knows now. Yeah, it really has. I can remember a friend of mine was was really into the guitar, and he would tune his guitar in all these unusual ways, and he was playing a lot of Brazilian music, and then, uh-huh. and uh, he was kind of a snob about it. And then one day, you know, I sort of said, "Well, do you know any Beatles songs?" And he said, "Well, of course, because <laughs> that's that's what everyone wants to sing along to, and like if I if I want to please." anyone I'm with, it's, mm. I have to break out the Beatles songs. They're sort of like our, they are our folk music. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, 
So I think what you said makes a lot of sense to me. I view them as being of interest because they are these these four young men having fun before settling down and being together. They really mm. appeal to men in particular in that way, I think. The idea that you're with your mates and you're, you're you know, maybe you could hit it big. But I think Absolutely. even beyond that, it's the fact that they were artistic and creative and that they were songwriters and that, you know, if mm. they were just a, a, a cover band that was, you know, selling out stadiums, they'd be kind of a phenomenon. But I don't think they would resonate with us today the way they do, because if we're looking yeah. for ways to want to be like them, as we said about Bond, where maybe you could dress better and you could sort of mm. be more stylish in your life. I think with the Beatles, it's you can be creative. You can. You don't need to look to others to do that for you. You can do it yourself. De yeah, I definitely. What you you mentioned earlier about the impact on of the Ed Sullivan show mm -hmm. when they uh, when that bit, a lot of that was the joy. Yeah, the, the, right. the sense that oh my god, they're having they're having such a good time. Yes. The joy that poured out of them, but to have that joy by being with some friends and being creative. That creativity is the sort of glue that joins you together, that, that joins your relationships and and is the sort of center of, of your life. That making music is the way to lead the best life. All that sort of, I think, really starts with the Beatles. The, in the sense that, of course, a band will write their own songs. You know, all the there's so there's so much that was uh, fresh and original and, and new about them. You know, from using the studio as a uh, as an instrument almost, or sort of create or the, or making the album the artistic statement of bands. All all these things that we just take for granted now um, are, are ways of understanding the music industry. Starting with the Beatles, like playing stadiums and all all these sort of things, but they were they, they weren't planned or anything like that. It was just it was there was the right time the right people the right moment making the right decisions every single time yeah uh so that now we just look back on it and it's just it's just endlessly fascinating yeah. you know there's something very special about new territory stuff and the first people to 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 do things you know we can all come later and do the same thing ourselves but it's not the same as, as the first people to stride out and 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 do all those things yeah. So for that reason, there can only really be, you know, one Beatles. Yeah. And whenever there's, um, you know, a new band or, yeah, and, uh, you know, young girls go crazy and it's it's always compared to, you know, Beatlemania because that's the archetype of hysteria and, and fandom and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's never, you know, people don't talk about BTS and go, oh, it's just like new kids on the block mania or anything like that. It's always the Beatles because that's, that's the first, really. That's that's when it sort of began. Yeah. And when you look at some other pioneers at an Elvis or a Bob Dylan mm. or, yeah. or, you know, a great jazz musician or something, you lack that sense of a group. And that I think that's what makes it for me so endlessly fascinating is because the way that the four of them fit together is mm. so they have such distinct roles and personalities and and contributions but they're also substantive and i i heard a, a story i think it was george martin someone was about to go maybe it was jeff emmerich was about to go into the studio for the first time mm. and george martin said kind of like be ready because all four of them are in there and emmerich yeah. was like well i've i've met two of them before or something. And, and he said, no, no, it's different. When all four of them are in a room together, there's mm. a kind of power that just emanates from them that you sort of have to, you know, be ready for because it can be overwhelming. And just yeah. that feeling that those four came together and they have all of these relationships with one another and you can look at two of them together and three of them together and how they were relating to one another. But just the idea that they kind of had this, um, I mean, it's almost like a, a legend or uh, uh, you could imagine it being like a, a myth that's, you know, hundreds of years old or something, the way the different personalities and the way their different artistic abilities all kind of melded and, and worked with one another, it would be hard to write if you were trying to make yeah, it up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I see it as alchemical, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all 
fantastic talents and you know they've all done great things as solo artists but it's really when the four of them get together that that's the reason why we're still talking about them yeah it's easy to see uh, to map them onto the alchemical sort of elements where like john is fire and ringo is earth and you know george is water and paul is air and together they come together and they create the the fifth element the, the you know yeah. the, the magic for want of a be- better word it's just the, it's just the perfect combination of personality types yeah just giving each other what they they all sort of lack yeah it was a little bit easier for me to see with bond to sort of say that britain could say here's who we are in the world we can be the the suave competent country <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but but as far as the Beatles go, do they view themselves as, well, we can be the the joyful bundle of energy? Or do you think it's it's maybe not tied into identity quite like that, but just more, well, these as sort of ambassadors, we're happy to have you have images of the mop tops or, you know, we're proud of them because of the music is great and they came from here. Well, I, I think for most British people, they're more like people we recognize mm. and can identify with than most of the figures that emerge out of Britain and are sort of presented around the world. Like things like, I don't know, you get Downton Abbey, that, that sort of image of Britain. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That could be Mars for all anyone who lives in this island recognizes it. <laughs> I mean, nothing to us. We're not like that in the slightest, you know, but it's. It's constantly presented as, oh, that's Britain, you know, that's England, you know, Uh, and it really isn't. We're very, very different. We're not classy. We're not competent. We're we're quite foolish uh, and we're daft and we do things like vote for Brexit, you know, that's, that's, that's the sort of level of sort of bumbling idiot, which I I mean in in a kindly way, you know, that's, that's who we sort of identify with. We don't, we don't see ourselves as superior in the way that if you watch the crown or as I say downton abbey or that sort of upper class sort of sort of thing i mean things like that exist in little tiny um enclaves right you know, they're not they're not totally fiction but they're they ain't britain not yeah. in any way shape or form yeah. um the, the way the beatles react to each other and the way they not sort of mock each other but sort of you know they were the greatest musicians of the 20th century, the greatest band of the 20th century. You never hear them say anything like that. You know, they would just, they would just mm. sort of gently take the mick out yeah, of each other. Right. You know, that's, that's much more us really, you know? Yeah. yeah. We, we, <laughs> we have that. And it's kind of this, this famous thing in America that because of the British accent and because there's such a, now it's Downton Abbey, uh, 10 or 20 years ago, I would have said it was the Masterpiece Theater. I'm not sure if uh-huh. you're familiar with that, but that's like a, a show that was here on PBS and it would play period costume dramas and a lot of Jane Austen and Dickens and, and George Eliot. And, and it was, you know, yeah. a lot of people would tune in and we'd see, you know, these uh, these posh uh, country estates and we'd see the aristocracy and all of that. And so yeah. we began to associate any British accent with that kind of lifestyle and so then you'd hear about soccer hooligans or something and you would think whoa wait you know (laughs) how does that fit (laughs) yeah absolutely um it's not representative of us at all and it's frustrating you know Mm, when when you live here and 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 there's this the powerful very much got the claws over all our media and and they, they very much want to present their world as the only world that sort of exists and it you know it's just daft and mm. so i think that's why when something like the beatles emerges it means so much to us yeah because right. we recognize ourselves in in the attitudes and, and the, the wit and the um, behavior of people like that mm-hmm. and these aren't for royals they're lads from liverpool and they're working class and they're absolutely hard scrabble and they've they've made themselves you know and it it is kind of a a nicer conception uh for someone who is not royal to uh be able to latch onto and say you know we don't all have to be to the manner born yeah absolutely and it was such a political shock to the system in the mm. 1960s i mean i um yeah. I, I, I quote <laughs> a, a writer called Hanif Qureshi, um, who, who wrote um, My Own Beautiful Laundrette and, and 
lots of great works like that. When he was in school in the 1960s, he was taught by his music teacher that the Beatles were a hoax, that the, yeah, they clearly didn't write this, you know, wonderful music. It had to have been, you know, George Martin or maybe Brian Epstein, who, mm. who were more classy or, or cultured, because that music teacher had been, you know, sent to an elite school and taught that, you know, people from the right families who went to the right schools were superior to everyone else. So the idea that like four, you know, or yeah. four scallies from Liverpool right. could write music that was self-evidently better than people of his social class could just blew his mind. It couldn't sort of couldn't accept it because if it was the case that, you know, um, imagination and creativity and talent and hard work and dedication and qualities like this, if these were spread evenly around the country and weren't, you know, concentrated in the children of the rich, that meant his entire worldview just fell apart because it no longer was the case that Britain was being run by the, you know, the brightest and the best, as they like to insist. Yeah. It was run by, you know, a small bunch of people who were statistically likely to be at best average, you know, mm. and frequently quite mediocre. Yeah. And, and and so he had to sort of <laughs> cling to this this um conspiracy theory about yeah. the Beatles. Because as Hanif Qureshi wrote, he came to recognize that he, his music teacher had to believe that because otherwise it would take too much else away. Mm. That's how he put it, which I thought was really in, insightful. Yeah. And so the emergence of the, the, the Beatles in the sixties was this huge political shift in in britain and you you meant you mentioned monty python in the 1970s and in monty python you know the the upper classes are figures of mockery the upper class twits and all this all this yeah. sort of stuff right. you wouldn't have had that before the beatles you know there's there's, there's this lovely I, I always like the um contrast between the films a hard day's night and goldfinger there's a character played by Richard Vernon who appears in both. Yeah. And in, in Goldfinger, he's, you know, he's very well respected. He's, he's at the Bank of England. He's complaining about an indifferent brandy. He's, he's telling Bond about uh, gold smuggling and things like that. But in Hard Day's Night, he's this guy with a bowler hat who goes into the same carriage as the Beatles. And, um, you know, he wants the window open and they want it closed or vice versa. And it's four of them and one of him. But he expects deference because of who he is, because yeah. of his social standing. And that's very much where the country was at that point. You know, should this figure with a bowler hat be a figure of mockery? Or in Goldfinger, a bowler hat is something to be feared. It's a weapon. It's that thing Oddjob has to throw to, to uh, attack people with. <laughs> right. You can, you can right. see, you can see right. the country just wrestling with these these sort of questions Yeah. In, in those two films. And after the Beatles come the 1970s, you know, the the mockery of, of people who all who expected deference is a, is, is a thing in the past, really. Yeah. And the Beatles, I mean, there's a million anecdotes I could pull, but one of them that comes to mind is the the famous exchange when after they finished their first time in the studio with George Martin and he was wearing his suit and all the the engineers had yeah. white coats on and everything and and he said well boys is there anything that you don't like and they were silent and then George Harrison said I don't like your tie um, yes. <laughs> it was kind of uh you know but it seems like the Beatles helped usher you through that because they sort of said you know it's going to be okay like we can let mm. the establishment die off we don't need to have this respect for it we can tweak it we can make fun of it we can we can show how powerless it really is and and all that but yet something new can grow out of this we can also have you know you can live by your own talents and you can succeed and you can uh become something that's even even bigger than the foreign service or or whatever the establishment is associated with i mean the beatles certainly yeah. kind of transcended everything that they were mocking yeah absolutely now obviously power structures don't just wither away once everybody realizes mm. how ludicrous mm -hmm. they are um <laughs> you know wealth and uh, connections and they, they're still they're still very much there yeah they don't they don't have the protection of a social system that believes them to be you know, God-given or necessary or or any anything like that. There's there's been huge changes, uh, I'm sure, over over in America as well as in Britain. 
um, with things like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the Me Too movement, in terms of things like ethnicity and gender and things like that, there's been huge uh, shifts, but it really hasn't in terms of wealth and inequality. Hmm. That's that sort of still remains this sort of it, it has the air, the next issue that we sort of need to tackle or people growing up in the 21st century are going to look at and go, well, why is that still there? That's just that's just ludicrous. Yeah. So I don't know. We we shall see. But I think if Bond tells us anything, it's that that tradition is powerful. Hmm. So certainly over here, tra- you know, tradition is of strange magic. Um, and once things become a, a set and become a tradition and keeps there's a, a consistency to something over time, it has a power of its own on some strange level. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely and that's definitely what you're saying we're sort of moving to in the new century. It's kind of how America has viewed Britain for a while, I think, is mm. we get it, we enjoy, certainly we go to visit Buckingham Palace and so on, and we sort of, you know, like the the tea and the, all of the... <laughs> oh, the you great, don't like the know. tea as much as we like the tea. <laughs> well, we like that you like it. You know, we like, <laughs> and we, we like kind of the... The refinement and Shakespeare and and Downton Abbey and and we kind of lap all that stuff up, but at mm. the same time, when we hear that you know s- some celebrity has been having a hard time because they weren't born to the right family, it be, yeah it's where the distinction becomes where we can't quite understand that as you know well well for us it's pretty much just wealth. Uh, yeah. that's the divider, but, but it's pretty easy to move. You know, you don't get a lot of people who say, oh, I, I don't want my daughter to date this millionaire because it's new money. Uh, I want them to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> have the right family background. And I think we maybe had that in the, the 19th century, but it's, it's no longer really that present. And so I think in that sense, we kind of like the examples when people are able to break out of that or when they criticize it when we see that in Britain. Yeah, accent's a big part of it over here yeah. as well. Yeah, for us... There was a film, oh, I guess it was Unforgiven. And oh, the, yes, yes. Yeah. And the actor was quite proud that he had dropped his posh accent and used a Cockney accent toward the end to show that basically he had been posing when he was in the, yeah. uh, his character had been posing. And and for me, I had to have that pointed out to me because it would have flown right over my head. It was, <laughs> but it it's sort of like the broad distinctions are lost on us, let alone the kind of minute uh, distinctions. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, ultimately, it, wealth is is the is the large part of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think we're quite sort of as much as you know the our current conservative government isn't going to last much longer, and I don't I don't think you'll find many people who support it. But we are quite a lot of people are quite pleased that the prime minister now Rishi Sunak. So to have a uh, uh, we've got an Indian um, prime minister. Um, and a Muslim mayor of London. And we, we're, we're quite proud of the sense that uh, people can come here and do well and, and, turn, in, and turn into successes. And um, there's, yeah. it's far from perfect, but there's a lot of acceptance um, uh, that wasn't there before, you know. Mm-hmm. But still, when you look at it, it's really wealth is what's accepted. Mm. You know, and that's, that's still underpinning it. There's a very big difference between Rishi Sunak, our prime minister, you know, and someone from a similar ethnic background who grew up in Bradford in the Midlands and doesn't have that wealth and how they're sort of treated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. John Higgs, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's lovely talking to you again. Great to talk to you. And that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Kafka as the devil, that was pretty gloomy. And then here came the sun. Some rays of sunshine with John Higgs. The book is called Love and Let Die. James Bond, The Beatles, and the British Psyche. Unofficial subtitle is Your Dad Wants This Book for His Birthday. Or for Father's Day, which is not too far away. My thanks to John Higgs for joining me. We've still got Schopenhauer in the works, people. It's taking more time than expected because I've been too damn cheerful to read him. It's like I'm I'm at a party. I'm enjoying. I wasn't expecting. 
<laughs> I don't want to go home. <laughs> but I do know there will be a point when I'm ready and then it will feel very good to be home, which I guess I'm saying... I guess what I'm saying is that being miserable and reading gloomy German philosophers is my home. Hey, you have your happy place. I have mine. Vitamin D deficiency. Be damned. They can give you pills for that. Although I do recommend sunshine for those of you suffering from the same ailment as me. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.